This is You Talking To Me, the podcast that takes a classic movie, a 14-year-old boy, and puts them together to see what happens next. James has never seen any of the films before, and he may not thank me for making him watch them. This is Man Vs. Boy Film Analysis. Hi, and welcome to You Talking To Me. For each episode, we take a classic movie for James to view for the first time, and we watch it together. From this shared experience, we discuss what we both thought of it to see if it still holds up. In this episode, we'll be talking about the Coen Brothers' Fargo. Hi, James. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Released in 1996, Fargo is written, edited and directed by Ethan and Joel Cohen. The film stars Francis McDormand, William H. Macy, Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare. This is a classic black comedy thriller that sees a heavily in-debt car salesman, Jerry, played by William H. Macy, hire two lowlifes to kidnap his wife on the basis that he'll split the ransom money with them, with the ransom being paid by his overbearing father-in-law. It's a desperate plan that goes horribly wrong due in part to the inclusion of the two kidnappers played by Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare. James, what did you know about Fargo before we sat and watched it? I knew the cast and I knew that it was going to have some detectives in, basically. And I also knew that it was going to be like set in winter. So this is the sixth Coen Brothers film and it was made during a period in their careers when they were coming off the back of a critical and financial failure. That was their fifth film, uh, which is called The Hudsucker Proxy. Prior to Hudsucker, all of their films had been critical and commercial successes. Those films uh, were all made on relatively small budgets. That's Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink. All of those are really, really excellent films, James. Yeah. I've got Raising Arizona. We'll watch Raising Arizona next, because that's excellent. That's a good idea. One of my my favourites. Hudsucker Proxy was a big-budget movie for 1994 when it was released, but it didn't do well, despite the fact that it is actually a pretty good film. In a way, by making Fargo, the Coens went back to basics, with a low-budget, very scaled-down crime story, much like Blood Simple and those earlier films. This could have been seen as a risk, I guess, but Fargo ultimately... Fargo becomes uh, perhaps the Cohen's most beloved film. So in a way, if it wasn't for the failure of Hudsucker Proxy, they never would have taken the chance on Fargo. For this film, IMDb gave it an 8.1 out of 10. Uh, Metacritic gives it an 85 out of 100. Letterboxd gives it 4.2 out of 5. Rotten Tomato gives it 94%. And uh, I read a review by Roger Ebert where he gives it four stars and he mentions that the filmmakers have taken risks and made it completely original and yeah I couldn't agree more. The film was nominated in all main categories at the Academy Awards including Best Picture, it won a Best Screenplay Oscar for the Coen Brothers and Best Acting Oscar for Francis McDormand. Taking place in snowy Minnesota and North Dakota, Fargo is one of the most, if not the most, popular of all Coen Brothers films, where I guess in that list you would include, I don't know what you think, James, Big Lebowski, No Country for Old Men. Yeah. That's the level of, you know, that's how popular Fargo is with people. Mm -hmm. It's retained its appeal over the years. It's one of those films that pretty much 
everything is perfect. We've talked about those sorts of films before. Yeah. The script is great. The acting's excellent. Direction's faultless. I think what struck me watching it again was that whilst the film is filled with potentially unsympathetic characters, it's got this kind of enduring charm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Most of the characters in the film are pretty unsympathetic and all the nice people are police. Yeah. Or, or police husbands. So we need to talk about the whole this is a true story claim that starts the film. Yeah. I know that I immediately spoilt that for you by leaning over and saying it's not. But I didn't really mean that to be a spoiler. I just I didn't think it was useful you thinking it was real, if you see what I mean. Yeah. But it was kind of a gimmick, you know. Some of the things that happened are based on real events. I believe there was a, you know, a wood chipper murder somewhere in that area. Um, so now that you've seen it, what did you what do you think about that idea, you know, of a fictional story that is pretending to be true? It definitely makes the film more effective, more shocking, I would say, if you think it's real. It's kind of messing around with audience preconceptions. If you're going into a film that you think is true, you're sort of going to watch it in a different way to, you know, complete fiction, aren't you? Yeah. Ethan Cohen said in an interview, we wanted to make a movie just in the genre of a true story movie. He, he goes on to say, you don't have to have a true story to make a true story movie. From that, you then get all these other strange and intriguing stories that come out of this film that's purportedly true. Do you know about the story about the Japanese lady who supposedly, under this sort of misguided impression that the film was a true story, died trying to locate the money hidden by the Steve Buscemi character <laughs> at the end of the film? Really? <laughs> I'm not going to dwell on it too much because it, it ends up being quite a morbid story. But from this film pretending to be true, there's actually a documentary called This Is A True Story that follows the story of Takako Konishi and the events surrounding her death. And then there's a 2014 movie called Kumiko, the Treasure Hunter, about a Japanese woman who discovers an old VHS copy of Fargo and then travels to Minnesota as if the movie itself is some sort of treasure map, uh, searching for the fortunes. But those stories aren't, aren't true. It's all a bit sad, really. So the media just latched onto something sensational about someone dying in the same vicinity that the film was set. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a sad story, really. A Konishi uh, who did travel to the US and did die in that area, it was actually a suicide and not linked to Fargo at all. So the film itself, the inspiration for another story that ultimately partly isn't true. So saying that, would you say that at the time... Fargo had a big like impact. Yeah, definitely. It was it was a big film. It did well at festivals. It did well at awards ceremonies. Yeah. So, do you think if it didn't say that it was a true story, it wouldn't be as popular? Or do you think it would be the same? I think that it's a good idea for a film. If you, and I don't see it as a cheat. I just wanted to make a film that was like a kind of true story film. Yeah. So even, even though it's not doing that, do you reckon it was also like help with marketing? Yeah, I think so. There was a buzz. There was a, definitely a buzz around the film. Yeah. The first scene in the bar between William H. Macy, Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare 
sets the tone of the film. Yeah. You know, this is a kidnapping story, and Jerry, William H. Macy, he's desperate and he's worried, and you can see he's kind of panicky. What did you think was going to happen? So I knew that um, it was going to be a detective thing, so I didn't know how that would link. So I just presumed that it was going to be like a kidnapping gone wrong. What about these kind of characters? You know, they're all quite deceitful. You're not, I don't, I don't think you necessarily are supposed to like any of them. Yeah. What did you think about the characters that we've met, that we meet at the start? I feel like they were all selfish in some aspect. Everyone's kind of cynical. Everyone's a liar. Everyone's cheating. I think Jerry, Jerry's kind of pathetic. Yeah. Um, and I, I know you're, you're probably not supposed to feel sorry for him. I did feel sorry for him a bit, even though what he's doing is really, really not on at all. But I think that's more to do with William H. Macy's acting. Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare are just, they're just a couple of bums, basically. The moment you see that they don't get on with each other, I think you know there's going to be trouble. Yeah. Not knowing what's going to happen, did you think then this is all going to go wrong? Yeah, I kind of could tell that it was going to because um, it has to go wrong at least once. Yeah, and it's a Coen Brothers film, so it's going to go wrong and it's going to be quite funny going wrong. The kidnapping scene uh, is is brilliant. And, it is. Um, sort of funny for all the wrong reasons. I mean, it's supposed to be funny, but, you know, it is someone being kidnapped. It shows how inept these two kidnappers are. There's that point where, you know, Steve Buscemi just literally comes up to the window, peers in, doesn't realise that Jean <laughs> is looking at him. She's obviously yeah. petrified. And he smashes the window to get in. And then Peter Stormare just walks in the door. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's almost slapstick. Yeah. It's all quite abrupt and funny. Jean yeah. falls down the stairs. She's running around with a shower curtain over her face. She doesn't know where she's going. Falls down the stairs, knocks herself unconscious. You know, should we be laughing at this? That chase around the house is all quite well planned in terms of the way it's shot. Coen Brothers storyboard everything. So in all their films, they heavily storyboard how they're going to make each scene or where the camera's going to be in yeah. quite an efficient way of filmmaking. I don't think you could have done it as well as they did it without planning every detail, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So this kind of crime thriller, comedy, black comedy crime thriller is evolving in front of your eyes, James, because you're looking at it knowing who's in it. Yeah. So at what point before the half hour mark are you thinking, where's Frances McDormand? So at the start I was thinking like, oh, I thought she was going to be a main character. And then I just forgot about it. And when the three people got murdered, I was like, oh, so this means that a detective's going to come. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really clever move. Up until the introduction of Marge, Marge Gunderson... You know, this is, like I say, it's sort of shaping up to be this kind of excellent blackly comic kind of crime movie. And then at 30 minutes, Marge comes in and it kind of brings a whole new dimension to the thriller that we're watching. You've seen Frances McDormand in other things. I saw it in Three Billboards, which was very good. Yeah, she's excellent in that. Mm -hmm. Burn After Reading she's in, you've seen that? Oh yeah, of course. She's like uh, friends with Brad Pitt. Up to this point, technically... As far as the audience, a new audience, as far as they're concerned, the lead character is Jerry, the William H. Macy character, this sad loser who's desperately trying to pay off his debts by having his wife kidnapped. You know, the story's from his perspective. Then at 30 minutes in, it completely shifts. Now Marge is the main character pushing the movie forward. Yeah. Did you, you know, it's like, I call it false protagonist. 
Mm. So you, you, you're led to believe it's one person, but actually it's somebody else completely different. Liking you, Psycho. Liking Psycho. That's what I was about to say. I was about to test you, <laughs> James. Yeah, exactly like in Psycho. Also, it kind of um, reminds me of one of the Coen brothers' other films, Burn After Reading, where it's like a few storylines, but they all interlink with each other at a certain point. The film it really reminds me of, of the Coens, is Blood Simple, which is yeah. the first film, which again, you really need to watch. It's a similar thing. Someone's plotting to commit a crime and it all goes wrong. So in this film, Marge and the kidnappers obviously don't cross paths until very, very late on. Yeah. In something like Blood Simple, there's all these things spiralling out of control and no one knows what's happening to the other person. You need to watch it. It's really, really good. Yeah. So Marge, who's heavily pregnant, is on the case. You know, she's a brilliant character. Frances McDormand is excellent here. Uh, she's the cleverest character in the movie. And her upbeat perspective is key to getting what she needs to try and find the kidnappers. We very quickly see Marge in action. And that's another, there's another great scene where she's investigating the murder of the police patrolman and the couple that witnessed Steve Buscemi moving the body of the patrolman off the road. You know, she's, she works out what's happening. She's deducing what we've already seen. And it's a really nice scene that places Marge squarely as the protagonist. This is a quality script. Probably one of the Cohen's best scripts. The dialogue is pretty excellent. But with Marge and Norm and the other locals, we get perhaps a heightened version of what is known as Minnesota nice. Have you heard of that expression? Uh, no, but I, is that like heightened or do they actually speak like that there? I don't. I can't imagine everyone says ya. But what did you think about that? What did you think about the way people spoke? I think that was uh, it definitely made it funnier. And... um Marge's partner is one of my favourite characters because he always lightens the mood whenever he says, like, yar and stuff like that. Here are these, you know, quite nice, mild-mannered people. Yeah. But actually, one of those people is going to solve this crime. Yeah. And there's loads of great lines. I love the fact that there's this repeated description of Carl, the Steve Buscemi <laughs> character. Uh, and this is sort of famous now, but, you know, that he is kind of funny looking yeah um you know that's brilliant and I, I guess a bit of a joke against steve buscemi bit of a cruel joke yeah i felt really sorry for him <laughs> it made me sympathize with carl more even though he's like a psycho it's still he's the nicest so... out of the two oh yeah definitely <laughs> peter stormer is just a nutcase pretty much um he gets a pretty rough deal yeah uh, gets shot in the face hilariously shot in the face and, and then... um and then he ends up in a wood chipper, yeah, which is just, a very unfortunate ending. Just his foot uh, sticking up <laughs> yeah. out of the wood chipper. I mean, I think that that kind of comedic violence works really, really well. You know, this film could be a completely different film, but with this, almost the same script. Yeah. You know, it could be a much darker movie. It could be full of violence. If you sort of tone down the Minnesota nice side of it. You know, this is potentially a completely different film, not necessarily the, you know, black comedy, but just a, a dark film. Yeah. You know, like I say, Cole being shot in the face. I mean, it's it's sort of or shot uh, across his face is probably a better way of describing it. And all those bits where he's trying to stem the blood, you know, with sort of <laughs> yeah. tissues and stuff. It's all, you know, it's all funny. It's kind of like comedy gore, you know, like we said, his foot's literally sticking out of the wood chipper you know i mean it's it's a funny scene you know yeah. when it wouldn't necessarily be that 
is that where you was kind of are now expecting from a Coen Brothers film now that you've seen a few? Uh, yeah, I mean, out of the ones I've seen, they've all had they've all had like comedy aspects in it, other than No Country for Old Men, which is dark. Yeah, that's not very funny. But um, yeah, in Burn After Reading, there are dark moments like when Brad Pitt gets shot. But then there's also funny moments. Some of their stuff is very, very light. Um, I mentioned it earlier, but we all-out-and-out out comedy, Raising Arizona we will watch i think that was quite an influential film for edgar wright really do you would you say that even because i think this is shot quite differently to something like uh the big lebowski yeah which is a bit sort of bigger a bit more kind of overblown not as small in scope as this but did you still think that this felt like a coen brothers movie oh yeah definitely it has like a um it's almost like um got a defined feeling because it's a good script as you've said and um as i said there's funny aspects yeah i mean uh, the way that they all of their dialogue in all of their films is is excellent yeah the way people talk is excellent i know they they're particular about who's best for the parts they're particular about who they pick as actors because they want them to get the best out of their scripts yeah so yeah absolutely i think all, all coen brothers films share certain distinctive characteristics and they also use a lot of the same actors yeah and yeah i was thinking of other directors that do the same thing where you can tell it's one of their films like uh tarantino because his always has a witty dialogue and it's always violent and he uses the same actors and he has a trademark shot where um it's like in the back of a boot or, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you open the boot and you see it from the inside. Yeah, and uh, you can also tell it's a Wes Anderson film when you're watching it because it's got the same actors again, always shot in a particular way. It's very symmetrical. Yeah, lots of symmetry, lots of kind of bold colours, uh, tableau. Uh, is Kubrick's a bit like that, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I've only seen, what, two Kubrick films? That There's a lot of symmetry in The Shining. So I think the way that, Kubrick chooses to frame a shot is simmer through through his films yeah I was thinking of maybe like somebody like Ridley Scott those sorts of films where he uses light and smoke and those sorts of things same as his brother Tony Scott also Martin Scorsese yeah there's yeah. a lot of similar writing and he uses the same actors the way he uses the camera is um, you know similar yeah I agree Damien Chazelle because all of his films have jazz in it and cinematography is always nice in his films. The Safdie brothers as well, they directed Uncut Gems and Good oh, Time. Yeah, yeah. So it's always like anxiety inducing and um, the same colour palette and the score is always like electro. Okay. Also Alfonso Cuaron, he uses a lot of um, very long shots in all of his films. Edgar Wright... Because oh, yeah, they're yeah, always yeah. centered around music, and there's I think always... the way that he shoots them, I think the way that he shoots a film is very actually it's very influenced by Raising Arizona. What you'll see in Raising Arizona, which you don't see in this film, and even in um, Barton Fink, and definitely in The Big Lebowski, is the camera moving a lot, it moves yeah. around a lot, follows people around, it's moving all the time. It doesn't do that in Fargo, yeah, and also in like um, World's End, there's always like a uh, in a bar, it goes cl it goes close up on um, beers and cheersing and stuff like that. Yeah. So heavily influenced by Raising Arizona. We will yeah. have to watch that. Definitely. So, you know, is this the most Coen Brothers, Coen Brothers film? Out of the ones I've 
seen? Yes, probably. I think there are like two types of Coen Brothers film. I feel like there's the kind of dialogue heavy crime movie that looks great, but you know, but is filled with kind of murder and double crossing. And that's kind of No Country for Old Men, Blood Simple, Miller's Crossing and Fargo. And then there's the kind of larger in life Coen Brothers films, which are kind of more visually inventive, perhaps wacky comedies, you know, Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, Hudsucker Proxy, Hail Caesar. Yeah. You know, they're very different. Mm -hmm. The Coen Brothers wanted a less stylized directorial style for this film and certainly less than the previous film, that the film that wasn't very successful, which is the Hudsucker Proxy. Fargo is lower budget and they wanted a more kind of documentary style yeah. in the way they were making it. The camera doesn't move around much. I feel like um, if they wanted it to be more documentary style, that would also help because it's like apparently based off true events. Absolutely. Here, you know, the camera just observes. You know, the camera is static and it doesn't move around like in those other films. Yeah. The Coen brothers were assisted in the look of Fargo in their collaboration with Roger Deakins, mm. cinematographer. Yeah. And I know you know some of the stuff that he's done. Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, he's, he's really well known. He's won loads of awards. English cinematographer. He's kind of best known for working with the Coen brothers, Sam Mendes and Denis Villeneuve. Oh, very um, nice. For Sam Mendes did Skyfall in 1917. Yeah. And then for Villeneuve did Prisoners and Sicario. And Blade Runner 2049. Oh. Also did Shawshank. Did he? And this one I thought you'd really like. He's also the cinematographer for Rango. <laughs> How does that even work? <laughs> Roger Deakins actually does his own podcast. And it's really, really interesting and really kind of in-depth conversations about filmmaking, all aspects of filmmaking. It's called the Team Deakins podcast. You should go and check it out. Yeah. James, you should go and check it out. He speaks with past collaborators, figures from all aspects of the film industry, techniques used, how films are shot. You know, it's really, really deep, interesting stuff. If you're interested in making films, that is a really, really good place to start. Check that out wherever you get your podcasts. I've not seen Fargo for a really long time, but I'm really, really pleased that we rewatched it. Yeah. I know you haven't seen all the Coen Brothers films yet. Yeah. But what are your kind of top ones? What I'd say probably my top three goes No Crunch for Old Men at number one because it's genuinely just amazing. Yeah, I'd say the same. Number two, I would say Fargo. And number three, I'd probably say Big Lebowski. Okay. I've always struggled a bit with Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Yeah, I don't really like it that much, to be honest. Big Lebowski, I kind of like, but I like it. I like bits of it. Yeah. My sort of top five, I'd say in no particular order, but I would put No Country for Old Men at number one. Love Raising Arizona, really like Fargo. Miller's Crossing is excellent, you need to see that. And Blood Simple, their debut, which is which is really, really good. Yeah. Fargo has obviously spawned a very successful TV show that started in 2014. There's four seasons of that. I've not seen any of that. Yeah, do you even know like the rough plot? I don't. I know that each season has different people in, but I'm going to check it out. I think I've got a renewed enthusiasm for Fargo, Coen Brothers related stuff. I'm definitely going to watch the Fargo TV show as soon as I've caught up with Rick and Morty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what would you say your favourite scene in it is? I really, I thought the kidnapping scene, uh, probably, I, lo- I do like that scene where you kind of get to know Marge. Yeah. We get an insight into her, how her mind works. It's, it's funnier than I remember. I kind of watched the whole thing with a big smile on my face and it was nice watching it with you. I like um, that scene a lot because it's, it's very dark because they're at a crime scene, but yet it's somehow really funny. Also, I'd say that's, if we're going on like cinematography, I'd say that's the best like looking scene. Yeah, there's so much white. I don't know how you light all that white and red against white. The, the burying the money scene, actually, that's quite good. Yeah. You know, there's nothing really said in that, but it's randomly pulling the car um, to the side of the road and kind of trying to bury the money whilst your face is bleeding. Then he buries the money and he looks to the left and he looks to the right and he realises that the terrain looks the same in both directions and he just <laughs> plonk this uh, bag of money down in the middle. And, that, and that's why he marks it. That's why he puts a yeah. marker down, um, even though obviously he never comes back for it. So what do you think, even though it's not a true story, what do you think would have happened to that money? Do you think it would have just stayed there forever? or like? Well, I guess I, what I was thinking when he was burying it is that surely the snow thaws he's only buried it in snow he's not buried that it is in the true ground. yeah so after the snow there's just a bag of money sitting on the side of the road i did read something which i thought was interesting and so marge is goes around interviewing people um to try and find the kidnappers and everyone she interviews says that and carl played by steve muscemi is as we've said earlier kind of funny looking <laughs> yeah but she never actually sees him because by the time she gets to the kidnapper's hideout, she, he's he's only his foot Yeah, left. she does see his foot. Great. Thanks, James. Uh, thank you. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFilm. That's talking with no G at the end. And please, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. See ya. the Hudsucker Proxy? Uh, No, I don't think I do. What's that about? Um, It's about two hours.